would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at chapter 19 today as we continue in our summer series looking at various parables in the Gospel of Luke. Today we come to the parable of the ten minas, and you can find that in Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 11. I'll read there and then down through uh, verse 27. As they heard these things, he, that's Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes that we might see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. Help us not only to see and understand, but to believe. Change us, Father, through the work of your spirit, even in these moments right now. We pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 4 BC. Herod, the great, the man who had been appointed king over uh, Israel in that area, had just died. And in his will, he had appointed that his son, Archelaus, would be, become king in his place. The problem was that only Caesar in Rome could officially appoint someone to be king. Archelaus had already begun to rule immediately, but in order for his kingship to be official, in order for it to be ratified, he had to go to Rome and see Caesar. It was also the time of the Passover feast. And just before Archelaus left for Rome to meet with Caesar, there was a disturbance in the temple. And the disturbance turned into a bloodbath where Archelaus's soldiers killed 3,000 Jewish wor worshipers. 
Archelaus then went to Rome to meet with Caesar Augustus. The Jews sent a delegation of 50 men to go to Rome and to plead with Caesar not to make Archelaus king over them and to let them have autonomy. And there were more than 8,000 Jews in Rome that also joined the protest. Caesar deliberated for several days and then he decided to appoint Archelaus, not as king, but as one just in a lesser position over Judea and Samaria and told him that he could become king if he proved himself. Archelaus returned to Israel and he immediately handed out swift punishment to the Jews, killing many and removing the high priest from office. In the end, Archelaus was regarded as one of the most hated rulers over Israel. Sound familiar? Thirty years later, some thirty years later, Jesus would actually use that historical event as the backdrop for this parable. He used a current historical event that would have been fresh in the minds of the people to tell this parable and to teach them about the kingdom of God. How are we supposed to be living between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming? What is the church supposed to be doing during that time period? What is meant to be the overall purpose and direction of our lives as we wait for Jesus, our king, to come back? That's what Jesus is teaching us here in this parable. And if we want to be faithful to our king, then we need to listen to what he says and we need to do what he says. So let's look today and see why Jesus told this parable. We'll look and see the parable that Jesus told and then we'll ask, so what? What difference does it make? So first of all, why did Jesus tell this parable? He actually gives us two reasons in verse 11, if you notice. He says that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because, first of all, he was near to Jerusalem. That's the first reason why he taught this parable to them. It's because he was near to Jerusalem. That's a very common phrase in the Gospel of Luke. Over and over again, it's mentioned that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was approaching Jerusalem. But before he gets there, Jesus stopped and told his disciples and the crowd this story. Why? Because when they get to Jerusalem, it is not going to be a party. Things are going to get difficult. Things are going to become very challenging for the disciples and certainly even for Jesus himself. Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem shortly after he tells this parable and things are going to get very hard, culminating in the very death of Jesus and the scattering of the disciples. So they were drawing near to Jerusalem and he wanted to make sure that they knew what was coming. So he tells them this parable. That's the first reason why he told it. The second reason, if we go on in verse 11, it's not only because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The disciples and the people that Jesus was teaching thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to establish the kingdom of God on earth. They thought Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be crowned king. Jesus had told them over and over and over again that his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, but they didn't get it. 
Not only did they not realize how difficult it was going to be when they got to Jerusalem, they thought the kingdom of God was immediately going to be set up. And Jesus told them this story to help them understand. Not only is it not going to immediately be set up, but there's going to be a delay. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait for the king to return. So because he was near Jerusalem, he wanted them to understand what they were about to experience. And because he wanted them to understand that the kingdom of God was not going to be immediately initiated when he got there, he tells them this parable. So what was the parable that he told them? Well, the parable is in verses 12 through 27. And as we hear the parable, we hear about about this nobleman. A nobleman who went to a far-off country, a far-off place, in order that he might be crowned king, much like Archelaus traveled all the way to Rome to go and to meet with Caesar. And then this nobleman, after he had gone a far distance away and was crowned king, he would come back to rule his kingdom. And so before he left, he gathered ten of his servants together, and he gave each one of them a mina. A mina was a coin or a, 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 a monetary value of about three months' wages. So it's not a small amount, but it's not a huge, enormous amount either. And I want you to notice the nobleman gave the servants very specific instructions about what they were supposed to be doing. You see that in verse 13, at the end of verse 13. He says, engage in business until I come back. Now, when he said that, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. The the word that is used there for engage in business It means, it's specifically meant to do business in trade and money lending. It's where we get our word pragmatic from. These servants would have been clear in their minds, they would have clearly understood that they were supposed to take this mina and go do business with it in order to make a profit. Now notice Jesus inserts a parenthetical comment here in the parable in verse 14. He talks about the citizens of the land, not the servants, but the citizens of the land. They hated the nobleman. They didn't want him to be king. They even tried to get him, uh, tried to prevent him from becoming the king. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Jesus wraps it up in, in the parable. But as we go on in the parable, we read in verse 15 that the nobleman indeed was appointed king, even though the, the citizens didn't want him to be king. He was, he was uh, crowned as king and then he returns back. To rule his kingdom. As he arrives back, he calls the servants together, the ones that he had given the minas to. He wanted to see how they had been profitable. He wanted to see how they had done with what he had given them. The first servant comes. He says, your mina, sir, has made ten more. It's a thousand percent return. That's a pretty good return on investment. So the king praised his servant and rewarded him. He said, you've been faithful over a little bit, and so now you're going to get to oversee ten cities. The second servant came and said, your mina has made five minas. A 500% return on investment. Again, the king praised the servant and rewarded him. Now you get to oversee five cities. And then the third servant comes. And we read what the third servant says in verses 21 and 22. Beginning in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you 
Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and and reap what you did not sow. He was afraid of the king. He was afraid of what the king might do if he, instead of getting a profit, what if he lost some of the mina's worth? What would the king do then? He was a severe man. He was a hard man. He was a businessman. He'd be angry with him and he was afraid. So he wrapped up his mina and put it in his sock drawer. Notice the king calls him a wicked servant. He could have at least put the money in the bank and gotten a little bit of interest for him. So we read that he takes the mina away from the third servant and he gives it to the first servant. And then the servants or the crowd, uh, the, the citizens of the people complain. That's not fair. Don't take this one mina and give it to the guy that's got ten. The king responds by saying that everyone that has, to everyone that has, more will be given. And the one that has not will lose even what they had. And then in the end, we come back to the citizens. The king calls his soldiers together to gather up the citizens that had rebelled against the king. And he has them executed in front of him. Now, before we move on to consider some application to ask, so what, what difference this makes for us, let's reflect just for a moment on what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Parables, as we've talked about in previous weeks, they're not meant to to press every detail too far. There's a point that Jesus is trying to make, and the story serves as a purpose of getting that point to us. In fact, I mean, you notice only three servants actually reported what they got. That's all that Jesus needed to make his point. He didn't need to go through all ten of the servants to, to make the point that he was trying to make. So what's the big picture that Jesus was trying to convey to the disciples and to the crowd? Jesus is the nobleman. He's about to go to a far off place. He's going to go back to heaven. He's going to ascend to heaven and be crowned king for the work that he has accomplished and the king that he is. And before he leaves, he distributes gifts and abilities and talents and resources to his servants, to all believers, to all who are in the body of Christ. And he instructs them, engage with the work of the kingdom. Be busy in the work of my father's kingdom. One day in the future, the king will come back. King Jesus will return. And he's going to call his people to himself. And he'll want a report on the kingdom work that we have done with the resources that he has provided for us. To those that are faithful in the kingdom, faithful in kingdom work, he will call them good stewards, good servants of the resources that he's given and praise and reward them. Those who are unfaithful, King Jesus won't be happy. And there will be consequences. Now, let's talk for a moment about this. Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable anything specific about this third servant. Was this third servant a true believer? A true Christian? Lots of ink has been spilled discussing that by scholars and pastors trying to press the details of the parable perhaps further than what they were designed to be. Maybe this third servant represents someone in the church who's acting like a Christian but doesn't have a genuine faith in Christ. 
Or maybe this third servant is truly a believer, truly a Christian, but is fearful and lazy and does almost nothing for the Lord. Certainly there seems to be a difference between this third servant and the citizens who rebelled against the king. But I think when we get into the details like this and try to overanalyze it, I think we're getting tempted to press the parable to say things that it wasn't intended to say. Jesus' point in this parable was not to describe what heaven is going to be like. What was the application of Jesus, uh, that Jesus is driving the disciples to? Well, that leads us to the so what. That leads us to the implications of this parable. And the first is this. The king is generous. That's one of the points that Jesus is wanting us to see in this parable. Did you notice that the rewards to the faithful servants are way out of proportion to the work that they did? The first servant turned three months salary into 30 months salary. Again, a thousand percent return. Now, that's no small feat. But he's given ten cities that he gets to have authority over. And the second servant servant takes uh, the three months salary and turns it into 15 months of salary, a 500 percent return. Again, a significant note. But he's given five cities that he gets to oversee and have authority over. So here's the point. Blessings and rewards for God's people who are faithful in the kingdom work far outweigh the work in the kingdom that they actually do. This is a picture of how generous and how gracious King Jesus is to his people. That what awaits us far exceeds any good works that we do before we get to heaven. This reality should push back on any thoughts that we have of God up in heaven looking down on us unimpressed and disinterested or apathetic to our small acts of faithful kingdom work. The Lord is radically and outrageously generous to us even in the small, unnoticed, mundane good works that we do in the kingdom. This is meant to motivate us to keep going. To motivate us and spur us on to more good works. To be motivated to get busy in the work of God's kingdom. The king is generous. Secondly, the kingdom grows and expands by its own power. This is meant to keep us from pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency as we live our lives doing kingdom work. Did you notice how the first and the second servants answered the king when he asked them what they had gained by doing business while he was gone? And notice carefully what they said in verses 16 and verse 18. Lord, your mina has made ten more or your mina has made five more. It's not, Lord, look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Here is how smart I was. Here is how good of a job I did in investing what you have given to me. It's subtle, but I think it's an important detail. The servants recognized that they were simply being faithful. And it was the king's mina that made the increase. What does the Bible tell us? is the power of God 
for salvation. What does the Bible tell us that accomplishes the expansion of the kingdom of God? It's not us being persuasive evangelists. It's not polished and persuasive preachers. It's not us giving our money to the right churches or ministries. It's not even getting the right political people in office to pass laws favorable to Christianity. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. It is Jesus Christ that will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we see any growth in the church, if we see people coming to faith in Christ, if we see covenant children making professions of faith and being admitted to the Lord's table, if we see any success in rooting out sin of our lives, of being less angry and less greedy and less gossiping and less impatient, if we see any growth in our knowledge of the Lord, if we see any any increase in our love and service to our neighbors, it is because God is at work. The Lord is the one who brings the increase and nothing in us. And listen, I would guess that every single one of us would say, Amen. Of course, the Lord brings the increase. But can I suggest to you that maybe we don't really believe that in the deepest parts of our heart? Do our thoughts and our actions show that we actually believe that it is the Lord who brings the increase. If we truly believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that the power of God is what grows the kingdom of God, it is what delivers people from their sin, it is what heals people from their diseases and causes the church to grow and expand, then how much would we be people of prayer? If God through his sovereign power and grace is what causes the kingdom of God to grow and he chooses to work through our prayers asking for the kingdom of God to grow and for the gospel to go into every nook and cranny of this world, how much would we be people of prayer? I think one of the reasons why we don't pray is because deep down we think the increase comes from our own hard work, our own abilities and talents and resources. Lord, your mina has made ten more. Your gospel is the power of salvation. Your grace and your truth grow the kingdom of God. Your Holy Spirit is what brings change in our lives and in this world. And so I will dedicate myself to praying faithfully and frequently that your kingdom would grow. The kingdom of God grows through its own power. Thirdly and lastly, the king is coming back. Jesus was making a clear statement that he was going to return. And that when he does return, all will give an account. And that reality is both good news and bad news. It's bad news for those who hate the king. It's bad news for those who rebel against his kingship like the citizens did in the parable. As we saw in the story, the king is sovereign. The king is all-powerful and he brings judgment on those who rebel against him. It's too late 
to pledge allegiance to the king once he returns. You have to do that before he gets back. And so, if you are here today or you are online and you have not professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your king, then let today be that day. Before the king returns, put your faith in him. But there is good news in the reality that the king is coming back. The good news is for those who are faithful and loving servants of King Jesus. When King Jesus returns... We will hear the words of our king, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest. You've been faithful with a little now, enjoy abundantly more. That reality of the king returning and that reality of hearing his praise and his reward is meant to motivate us to respond. How are we supposed to live knowing that the king is coming back? In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, speaking to Christians, says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus has gone off to a far away place. He has been crowned king and he is coming back. And while he's gone, he has given each of us, each of his parts of the body, Things to do in the kingdom. When he returns, he's going to ask us to give an account how we have used the talents and abilities and resources and skills that he has entrusted to us to help build the kingdom of God. We are meant to do that in our vocations. We are meant to do that as students. We are meant to do that in our homes and in the community in which we live and certainly in the church. The focus of the parable isn't on how much the Lord has given us to use. And it's not really on the amount of the rewards that are given. The focus is about being faithful and diligent to do kingdom work until our king returns. So the question for us is this. Are we being faithful? Are we using what the Lord has given us and, and where he has placed us to be at work? In his kingdom. Now, as, I, as we close, I, I realize that many of us probably feel the heaviness of Jesus's and Paul's words here. It's true that the reality that we all have to give an account for what good works we've done is meant to motivate us. But it also probably makes us nervous and anxious and afraid. Because we know deep down, if we're honest, in the past and likely in the future, we're more like the third servant than the first two. Can I just remind you what Luke told us on either side of this parable, right before it began and right after? If you look in verse 11 again, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And in verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that Luke has bracketed this parable that sometimes can cause us to feel the heaviness of the calling of working in the kingdom of God with the reminder that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he dies on a cross. All of our sin... 
All of our failure, failures to be faithful, all of the ways that we are like the third servant, are put on Jesus and paid for once and for all. The ultimate good and faithful servant Jesus was condemned and forsaken by his father so that we could be commended as good and faithful servants. God's grace to us in the gospel removes our fear and removes our anxiety and frees us up to serve our king out of love. We serve him not to earn his love and acceptance, but in response to the love and acceptance he has already given to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that God's grace and love to us gets into our hearts and our minds, the more we will be motivated and empowered to engage in the business of doing kingdom work. I want us to close the sermon today in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to ask you to take your hymnals and turn to the back, page 867. In the back of our hymnals, we have several different things here. We have a number of the psalms that are printed for us, responsive readings. We have some creeds. And we also have the Westminster Confession of Faith printed for us. And on, uh, I think it's page 857, sorry. On page 857, we have chapter 16 of Good Works. I want us to close the sermon talking about what it looks like to work in the kingdom of God by reading out loud a couple of these paragraphs. So we're going to read paragraph 1, 2, 5, and 6. Let's read these together out loud. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, the eternal life. Paragraph 5. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. 
although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Let's pray together. Father, it really is amazing that you call us as your people to be the body of Christ. And we're all members of it. And you have given us gifts and abilities and talents and resources. It is amazing that you call us in this time as we wait for our king to return to be busy engaging in the business of your kingdom. That you would be pleased to work through us. That the gospel would go forth. That people would profess their faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for this wonderful task, this wonderful calling that you've given to every single one of us. Help us to discern how you have equipped us and placed us to serve in your kingdom. And as we see those opportunities, I do pray, Father, that through the work of your spirit, you would strengthen us and motivate us and enable us to go and do the work of your kingdom for your glory and for the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be proclaimed. For we ask this in his name. Amen.